Hello and welcome to another edition of the Hindus Parley podcast in which we take up a question of public importance every week and try to get the perspectives from two experts. I am Konvasan, I work as a reporter with the Tamil Nadu Bureau of the Hindu and the question for this week is should the 50% legal ceiling on reservation be reconsidered? The question has once again gained significance because on Gandhi Jayanti this month the Bihar government released data of its caste survey. For the first time this survey results have clearly shown the proportion of different caste categories in the population. The opposition parties have intensified their call for a nationwide caste based census. This is going to be a key issue for the opposition in the 2024 elections to corner the ruling BJP. Many believe that this may turn out to be a watershed moment for India just like how the implementation of Mandal Commission's recommendations in 1990 was. It is in this context that we have taken up this question. To discuss that we have Alok Prasanna Kumar from Vidhi Center for Legal Policy. He is its co-founder and also the lead for Vidhi Karnataka. His research interests include judicial reforms, constitutional law, urban development and law and technology. He discusses a variety of issues including reservation in his monthly column for the Economic and Political Weekly. His columns have appeared in a number of other news outlets as well. We also have with us A Kalayarasan who is an assistant professor with the Madras Institute of Development Studies. His research interests include economic development, political economy of inequality, institutional change and regional political economy. He co-authored the book The Dravidian Model interpreting the political economy of Tamil Nadu his opinion articles have appeared in the hindu and other news outlets as well i welcome you both thank you for joining today thanks vasant my pleasure to be on this podcast thanks vasant it's my pleasure to be part of this event thank you thank you professor kalarasan i would like to start with you since you have studied uh, the developments in tamil nadu closely and tamil nadu has remained an exception where the 69% reservation has been in force for at least Uh, around the past four decades so in that context how do you see this development has this finally necessitated the need for you know revising this ceiling that was set in the indra sonic case which many believe was uh, was an arbitrary uh, fixing of the ceiling without sound uh, logic yes uh, certainly i see uh, i mean uh, all practical purpose i think this 50 the ceiling the breaching of the ceiling looks like an inevitable historical processes let me explain as to why that is inevitable i think it's many uh, uh, political scientists and sociologists have a view that uh, the 50% ceiling imposed by indra sani case in 90 early 93 if i'm right was in a way arbitrary because the judiciary did not have any number to put that cap it was seen as an arbitrary on the judiciary in that sense so that way what we have now is a situation in for all practical purposes most of the states have already breached this uh, 50% for instance tamil nadu actually brought its own law in 94 and uh, for increasing reservation to 69% uh, got this uh, law uh, protected from the judicial review putting it under 9th schedule so i think the most of the states already be, uh, have breached this uh, extending reservation beyond 50% more so even on the center by bringing the economic 
Economically weekly section quota for economically weekly section EWS, what is known as EWS, has already breached in a way of uh, moving beyond fifty uh, percent. So I think this process is inevitable. Of uh, uh, given the uh, the bigger census, only thing now requires, I guess, is two things. One, this may have a direct implication on the central quota, not on the state. Of course, state will have its own. Uh, uh, size of the quota set it depends on the size of the population, distribution of the population in the Pacific states. But what this will have implications if this census is done at the national level will direct bearing on the central reservation. I think that is actually the question. The second question is perhaps it is the, the government, the central government has to bring some law at some point in time to make this protection as a constitutional, which is now as a, which is seen as this, uh, uh, the protection from the ninth schedule is seen as a specific act, but perhaps this will be by an amendment. This will be seen as a as a as a national level eligible possibility for extending the solution. I think there's only two things I see in this context. Great, thank you, thank you, Professor. Uh, Mr. President, uh, Professor Kalerison mentioned about the EWS reservation, which uh, sort of already breached the fifty percent ceiling, and uh, there is also a view that in the EWS judgment. The Supreme Court was careful enough to reiterate that the 50% ceiling on the caste-based reservation will continue. Although uh, Professor Kalerison pointed out that, you know, there was no sound logic in the setting up of the 50% ceiling, many believe that it is in some crude way uh, uh, sort of an equality of opportunity, 50% for reservation and 50% in the uh, for the open quota. How do you see this development and do you also see that the time has come for revising this the 50% ceiling. So, for the benefit of our listeners, let me start a little bit with the history of this. Sure. The history of this, and like Mr. Kalerasan has pointed out, it comes out of nowhere. Because in one judgment in passing, courts say, you know, maybe we think there has to be some limit. This is in the Devadasan case. And it starts in the context of jobs. Right? Let's, let's limit our discussion to jobs because education will be slightly different. It starts in the context of jobs. They say, you know, there is a need to have, there is equality of opportunity also guaranteed under the constitution. We don't want to take that away, but we're not sure how to balance. Maybe 50%, right? They say maybe 50%. After a while, the judiciary has a rethink. This The 50% starts creeping up in judgments more. But in the 80s, and especially in the N.M. Thomas case, the Supreme Court says, what 50%? Why should it be 50%? Right? This is a completely un reasoned sort of offhand remark that has somehow become a principle of law. We want to push back against it. That opens the floodgates to a lot of states like Karnataka, like Tamil Nadu and others saying, fine, now we can provide more reservation. But the much bigger pushback comes in the context of the Mandal case, where the judiciary essentially elevates that earlier principle almost to a status of a fundamental right. Right. To say that, no, no, 50% has to be there in order to ensure equality. And they leave a small gap open saying in exceptional situations and circumstances, we may uh, say that more than 50% is okay. Again, this is, as was mentioned earlier, in the specific context only of caste-based reservation, right? Which is why even in the economically weaker section judgment, it's a judgment which has huge problems of its own. They say, yeah, yeah, we may have say 10% is okay for economically weaker sections, but that shouldn't be meant to understand that it's okay to go beyond 50% for caste-based reservation. Now, here comes the issue. Uh, this is, again, something the judiciary is not able to defend in a principled way. right? The 50% is always a 
rule of thumb and unfortunately the rule of thumb has become such practice that it has practically become constitutional law but we are yet to see a major state when i say a major state i mean like see tamil nadu has that that's a pending case by the way tamil nadu's uh, 69% reservation is pending with the supreme court whether its inclusion in the ninth schedule was justified or not and so on that is still pending yes but even before and usually all of this happens at the state level before it goes to the central level if bihar were to take this particular caste census and say hypothetically they say we need to give 65% reservation see because one other thing has to be kept in mind even at the time of the indrasani uh, indrasani judgment it was known that the proportion of obcs is much beyond the 27% the reservation that they've gotten right you see the again they were not sure of the numbers because there was no caste census at that point of time but they said look clearly the percentage of population if we take from the 1931 census which will enable which will benefit from reservation is clearly more than 50% beyond 60% also but we are imposing this limit nonetheless right so which is why uh, as mr kadarasan pointed out i one state has to take the lead and say we will batter down the gates we will dare the supreme court now that we have the data now that we have the information to say why they should stick to 50% and i am pretty sure that any state which is willing to do this will also come in as a litigation strategy right you have passed the law now is a litigation strategy are we willing to ask the supreme court to reconsider its judge the seven bench judgment in indrasan now even as we speak the supreme court is rehearing of a not here a seven judge bench is hearing a five uh, judgment recently delivered by a five judge bench so this is not very difficult or per se impossible but uh, that political moment has to be right that particular set of principles like the evolution of reservation law how it has gone in various directions uh, that is part of the litigation strategy and i'm sure somebody will take has to take that lead will take that lead jharkhand has also done it to a certain extent i don't think the matter has come to the supreme court yet but i have a feeling that this will spawn it's put in place the steps which will eventually lead to that finding in indrasani needing to be relooked and will have to be relooked by nine judge bench uh, nine judge bench to really be overturned now as we all know uh, only a part of the caste survey data has been released we know the population count but we don't have the details yet about the socio economic status of all these castes now there have been discussions in the past about wide variations of socio economic status within the broad obc category itself uh, you know in bihar the data shows that uh, around 63% belong to the obcs in tamil nadu if a similar exercise is done it is likely that the percentage may be even higher and uh, there have been discussions that you know some communities uh, are cornering uh, majority of the benefits from these reservations and it is not getting distributed to all the communities within the obc category so now when we get this socio economic data for every particular caste will that lead to some discussion or demand about reconfiguring which this obc classification itself and who gets in and who gets out because we should also perhaps see this in the context of uh, certain communities like the marathas jats and patidars for their inclusion in the obcs how do you see all this playing out Uh, Professor Kalaras, you want to go first? Yes, yes. Yeah. I think you're right. You, you, you're spot on. I think this is certainly this again. I would see. I would think of this as an another historical processes. This will necessarily will lead to that situation because remember, OBC as a category is an administrative category. It is not caste category. It, as you rightly mentioned, 
there are range of cost very heterogeneous uh, grouping what we have called as obc they are very heterogeneous in the sense in some of the communities are positioned in antagonistic level in the sense you can think of broadly i would think of as a broadly three grouping within obc one would say what the other our sociologists call as a upper group or upper backward which necessarily includes of the landed communities as you rightly mentioned the jats marathas patel gounders in each region you will find a certain communities which are very landed and locally dominant and uh, enjoy certain uh, dominance in the rural india in particular so definitely there is a risk of uh, uh, those communities taking this advantage if they are included already in the obc list therefore this sub categorization what is otherwise known as sub categorization of the communities which are not having enough representation or ability to uh, uh, enjoy or ability to take advantage of this reservation would demand as a sub categorization which already took place in bihar which where the census uh, happened it's called there the sub grouping it's called ebc extremely backward class in tamil nadu it is called most backward class in each of the region you will find it interestingly even the population wise it is at the bottom layers of the small community which is normally called as a service caste groups which is small small numbers artisans and service caste this actually if you if you aggregate them that works out to be roughly in bihar 36% of the population unlike the the upper end of the obc which is called 27 here so this would actually my reading is this would actually be similar in the most of the uh, uh, states because this community are small small numbers and who have not been uh, given enough representation in not just in the political process even in the jobs and the opportunities obviously this is not just because of the political reason even for in in the terms of normative thinking of the uh, right to representation or you know addressing the backwardness i think this process is inevitable of some kind of subcategorization to give them a to address the specific grievances of the community which are at position at the lower rung of the obc which i guess is a necessary process in the in the in, in, given this circumstances mr alok your your thoughts how do you see this so karnataka has been here before in the late 1980s there was the venkata swami commission which commissioned an actual survey from what i recall about 91% of karnataka's population were part of the survey it was a caste it was a socio economic and caste census it uh, caused huge controversy the controversy was not because the castes were backward or not the controversy was that okkaligas and lingayats who had i think about two generations benefit of reservations were way better than most other backward castes and the logically one they would say that yeah then maybe these castes perhaps shouldn't take the benefit of reservations those castes hit the streets there were mass agitations it caused huge ruptures within the Gen- then janata party in karnataka uh, it led to mr ramkrishna hegde kind of being deposed by his own party then mr bombay who was a lingayat also being deposed by his own party and led eventually to the rise of mr devegoda and that historical process has taken place but come back to the present context why have marathas in the jayshree patel case supreme court has said marathas are about as well off as any other quote unquote upper caste so they cannot benefit from reservations uh, likewise for jats and for other communities and there was research i think it was done by ms ashwini deshpande and another colleague a couple of colleagues of hers which pointed out that if you look at the uh, socio economic level the development of the these communities that much closer 
to the so-called upper castes than to other again the administrative category of obcs now this comes to something which is the conceptual problem mr kalerasan hinted at this in the beginning let me expand a little bit on this the constitution says socially and educationally backward classes and unlike with scheduled caste and scheduled tribe there is no clear conceptual way of defining them right you so when you say socially and educationally what we have said is let's look at the data but the data is useful when you have some idea of what you are looking for right so for instance if someone were to say how many government jobs they have had then a lot of uh, so called advanced obcs will not be eligible for reservation at all so then what data do you look at and that was one of the data which the venkat swami commission had looked at and that was what said these guys are practically quote unquote forward castes then they found that within the same caste you have a lot of them who are well off and a lot of them who are very badly off so you have so the you, the larger inequality in the country also shows up within a caste with a sufficiently yeah. large population right to me the person who has actually i think significantly thought about this issue but unfortunately whose writings on reservation hasn't become very popular is dr nagraj uh, he is a, a philosopher yeah. and a cultural theorist and so on he himself belonged to what is now a backward caste and his idea was that if we have to provide for socially educationally backward classes let us look at those classes which lost because of the industrial revolution let us look at those castes such as the weaving caste the iron mongers those castes which provided a whole range of services which today have been wiped out because of industrialization mass organization neoliberal economics let us focus on those castes so in some senses what this data will call for and this is where the jurisprudence will have to change around don't just look at the data because the data is meaningful if you have some conceptual idea of who is supposed to be a socially and educationally backward class and i think that is what i i hope that is that simply looking at you know uh, just like okay we'll set a barrier that everybody who's below this is a socially economically backward class and so on and so may have led us to this position where certain ca- uh, classes and castes have actually dominated the or taken the big chunk out of this karnataka has already done this subdivision to what extent it has worked you would have known if the sidramaiah government uh, which conducted the socio economic and caste census survey in 2000 and uh, 14 15 sometime released the data unfortunately they have not released that data now even that data may have become slightly outdated right because uh, we we things have changed since then lots more developments have taken place but this sub categorization has already happened karnataka has four has actually six categories of subdivision for backward castes and trust me anybody who's practiced service law in karnataka has you know like uh, will, will, uh, has this nightmare about which where caste which category and so on but anyway uh, sub categorization is necessary but it can only happen downstream once there is some serious conceptual jurisprudential rethinking of who is a socially and educationally backward class thank you uh now rahul gandhi has raised this slogan of jitni abadi utna haq and which has come into strong criticism from the prime minister you know we also uh, when we were discussing the last question we discussed about the sub categorization within the obc category but uh, i mean mr rahul gandhi seems to have uh, given uh, or said that in a sense that you know uh, increased representation should be available for obcs scs and sts as a whole but there is also an apprehension that this may even lead to uh, uh, besides the subcategorization 
it may even lead to individual caste groups who are numerically dominant to come up with demands for separate reservation we have already seen that happening in tamil nadu uh, in the run up to the assembly elections in 2021 the one year community came out in a big way asking for separate reservation and then tamil nadu government succumbed but it did not stand the uh, judicial scrutiny i'm sure there have been such demands in other states as well so which will will this lead to further break up of those subcategorization and leading to assertion by individual communities for their own share in this reservation mr alok do you want to yeah. take this first I, yeah i yeah i'll just respond to that uh, like with tamil nadu uh, the bjp government here in karnataka just before the elections tried to do subcategorization within the scheduled castes in karnataka the list of scheduled castes in karnataka overnight there was such a strong political reaction to it that uh, they say the up quote unquote uppermost or the most well off of the scheduled caste communities who had started to support the bjp basically burned down mr edurappa's house <laughs> all right <laughs> in, in some sense it was that strong a reaction uh, and perhaps that may have contributed in some way to the bjp losing support sub categorization is a zero sum game there is no guarantee Right, the BJP thought, you know, we will get the less well-off scheduled caste on our side. We generally tended to vote for the Congress. Let us show that we are on their side. It meant that they actually ended up losing the support of the better-off uh, scheduled caste in the state. So it is a zero-sum game. Uh, we don't know what will be the implication of this. Now, there is one other important point which I have to mention here that the Supreme Court will soon start hearing a case. Um, on the question of subcategorization within scheduled caste now within as i've said within uh, social educationally backward classes is not an issue at all it's just a matter of the political plus administrative exigencies with scheduled caste it's a huge issue because back in 2004-5 the supreme court in ev chennaiya case coming from the state of andhra pradesh had said subcategorization by a state is not possible there is one uh, constitutional list prepared by the president or the central government everybody has to follow it and you cannot give priority to one kasam caste over the others in your state but that the supreme court recently has said will need a relook uh, and it it has said this needs a relook it was a bench of equal strength so they have referred it to a seven judge bench the seven judge bench they are deciding when they will hear that case but this is the demand but here's the thing subcategorization is not the only way what punjab tried and this was in the in the context of the case which came from punjab which said it, it's something started with jm just escape, the name is just escaping my mind they said we will give priority so mazhabi six and one other community of dalit sikhs in uh, punjab they were to get priority not that x percentage will be reserved for them so if there are successful candidates from these communities they will get priority over candidates from other the scheduled caste communities in the state of punjab was what they had said uh the supreme court said this seems to be okay it is not necessarily hit by the ev chinnaya judgment which says subcategorization is not possible uh and a seven judge bench of the supreme court will decide definitively uh whether both these principles can stand that is it is possible to prioritize without necessarily subcategorization or they might say actually any way you want to break it down whether through subcategorization or prioritization is okay because the state will know better so that's a principle of law again only in the context of scheduled castes within the government list where this might have to be applied but 
if there is subcategorization, then it will also open up the question whether, like we discussed before, whether Sankha should even be in the list. Now, to, to go back to Karnataka's example in the late 80s, the political solution was Lingayats were put in a separate list and the Vokaligas were put in a separate list so that they don't compete. They essentially end up, quote-unquote, competing with far less numerous castes and far more socially and educationally backward castes in these lists uh, in, uh, for backward class reservations. So, yes, they might dominate, but not at each other's expense. So, but again, it, it, was, it was also something which speaks to some of the absurdities which have happened over the years. Because in Karnataka, you have... So there is one list of most backward class. It's not called most backward class. It's called group one or uh, 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 group one. And there is group one, 2A, 2B, 3A, 3C. And they recently introduced a new group. But this list also includes Jains. It includes Christians. Some Muslim castes are in most backward castes. All Muslims are in others. And there are income limits for various castes and so on and so forth. So it is subcategorization is not a simple solution of more for this caste and less for that caste. It could get also subsumed in the political tug of war that tends to happen within a state. And it may not it may not necessarily lead to the most optimal solution, as I see it, in the context of ensuring representation, at least in the context of government jobs. Just a small clarification from my understanding. When you said that the court ruled out any sort of subcategorization, do we mean that subcategorization at caste level or uh, some castes were bundled together as a group and categorized as one particular category? No. Because in some way, even the EBC or MBC in Tamil Nadu are also subcategories, isn't it? Yeah, yeah no, that's permitted for socially educationally backward classes. Right. Not within the scheduled caste. Not within scheduled caste. Right? So within right. scheduled caste, you can't make any any categorization whatsoever. Because, and court's reasoning, it's not entirely baseless. Because the list of scheduled castes is prepared at the central level. Now, this was intended so that purely local politics would not push Dalits out of, you know, chance to get reservation. They wanted to be done at the central level, free from the concerns of local politics. But with backward classes, there is a central list and a state list. So, which is why it is not bound by the same constitutional limitation on who can prepare a list of castes eligible for reservations. Right. Thank you. Professor Kalerizan, how do you see this? Because yeah. you also, uh, you know, uh, mentioned earlier that uh, this whole exercise may uh, uh, necessitate the uh, need for subcategorization within the categories. But there is also this dilemma about how much do we uh, divide within the uh, uh, categories? Like, should it get to the caste level? How do you see this? No, I think uh, get back to the, before addressing this subcategorization question, I think we need to give a little pay attention to the slogan that Rahul Gandhi used, which is Jitni Abadi Utna Hak, which is, I think, is a conceptual slogan, which needs to be uh, uh, discussed in detail, detail because this, I guess this comes from an understanding, again, uh, from a political slogan in North India, particularly from the context of UP, uh, where the similar slogan was raised, say, 20, 30 years before by Kanshiram. The Kanshiram slogan is, Jiski Jitni which is something similar to, in the sense, you need to give a equal rights to according to their population, which not necessarily mean reservation. That's what I, I'm, I'm understanding of this slogan. It could 
reservation could be one component of that uh, slogan i am not sure uh, rahul gandhi used that slogan essentially translating that slogan into a reservation according to the population that could be one element of that i think what is raising the question is yeah there is some kind of group based deprivation that group based deprivation according to him you know aggregates to along this category settled caste settled tribe and obc i think that what is meant in in when when is raising slogan which not in dividing caste in very at granular level obviously as you rightly said there is an a potential by political parties to take or caste groups to take that slogan into making a specific independent caste based mobilization that possible according many states is already happened uh, uh, that kind of mobilization in tamil nadu case as you rightly mentioned before one years or it could also find the similar minas you know different communities in different states i think we need to understand two things here one is to identify the group based deprivation which may not necessarily to be breaking very caste granular level it could also be definitely grouping set of caste which are similarly positioned and make a group based uh, representation or group based uh, policy response to this addressing the deprivation at that level but which not necessarily mean breaking down into the caste group which political parties may employ that strategies for different reasons it's always have that kind of risk i think we need to differentiate to two two different causes what rahul gandhi meant or what uh, uh kanshiram uh, is historically used that slogan i think that needs to be first settled the second whether this will further divide caste further go down in you know asking separate could i think it is you know remember caste is always a divisive which if you follow uh, br ambedkar's uh, uh, brilliant text annihilation of caste i think says one of the reason india could never come become a political community is partly because caste is a divisive identity which will never allow people coming together this would happen at the macro level as a country as a nation as a collective it would also happen at the sub level you know you know it's it's in a localized level that is where the one competing groups you know share things like that so i think we need to pay attention to this this dynamics this dynamics looks like for me is again an inevitable but different only difference that make is how the political parties or the social mobilization responds to this which is in a way while you address the group based inequalities at the same time tame the caste based mobilization whether that possible or you know group based up deprivation will addressing group based deprivation will necessarily lead to caste based mobilization is something we need to think of but i think there is a possibility one can think it need not go that, that direction we can you know while we can simultaneously address the caste based deprivation although Well, uh, stop the caste-based mobilization. I think we need to think through that. Thing. So we need to be careful what sense Rahul Gandhi used this. I think he used in the sense to essentially address the group-based deprivation across levels in the society. I think that's what I uh, take from his uh, slogan of "Jitni abadi utna." Thank you. Uh, I think the next question is somewhat related to this, and I think Professor Kalerasen has already uh, provided part of that answer. So I want to put this question uh, more directly to Mr. Alok uh, about, you know, the criticisms that this whole exercise will accentuate caste identities. Many people have expressed concerns. Pratap Anumita has written a column strongly criticizing this move, and uh, there are also concerns that this will lead to a more fragmented polity. 
you know, in terms of solidarity that uh, exists to whatever extent now within the OBCs or scheduled castes and scheduled tribes, that may further divide and lead to political parties emerging very specific caste interests. Uh, how do you see such criticisms? In 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 one sense, I think there is validity in that criticism, but it is also not something to say not do something. The reason is these identities are there. It's just that the administrative state has not seen them. Right? When I say seen, I mean in like an official way, in terms of recording, in terms of linking entitlements to it, entitlements to that, and so on. But I want to take one step further back from this, and I sort of feel that. This is where this is something that the discourse on reservation is slightly missing. There are two larger forces at play, which say even a caste survey cannot address, or even the criticism that you are limiting the caste this thing, you are limiting uh, this to only caste identities is also not taken into account. Number one is the what I like to call the privatization of the state. Now the state is outsourcing a lot of its work. Wholesale to other entities, which are not particularly going to be bound by some of these obligations relating to caste or reservation and so on, right? Uh, you are sort of seeing that uh, the state is no longer going to be providing those jobs; those are being done by the private entities themselves. So many, and you know, it started off with in the, from 1983 with a lot of PSUs being going away into this. But I'm also sort of seeing some of the core functions of the state, essentially being outsourced in that way. The other thing is, even within the state, we are seeing a sort of contractualization of labor. We are seeing that the state prefers informal year-to-year -year contracts. It used to be only at like the lowest level, like of employment, which is Group D employees, as they used to be called. Now they've done away with Group D entirely. Their next plan is to do away with Group C entirely, which used to be your LDCs and your clerks and your so on. So you're essentially left with two higher levels. But even there, we sort of see this whole lateral movement aspect of it coming in. But government wants to attract people from outside, and it is in some senses also seen as a way of avoiding the reservation requirements. Now, that way, what is happening is. You are essentially fighting over jobs which don't exist anymore. What is the point of reserving is that fifty, sixty, seventy-five, eighty percent of zero? It is still going to be zero. There's a second thing which I think we are, is not sufficiently being studied, which is that a lot of states have just stopped filling up vacant posts. You will see that a lot of students who are studying for the entrance exams for these posts across North India, especially little less so perhaps across South India, because government jobs aren't considered. That vital, essential, earth-shattering kind of improvements in one's life, but across North Indian states, posts aren't being filled. Even in Bihar, I don't think they've in, since 2018, no large-scale recruitment has taken place for gov Bihar government posts. So first, you're getting rid of whatever posts that were there. You're outsourcing it to the private sector or contractualizing it, and two, whatever posts are there, you just don't want to fill. Now, what is what are the impulses informing this? I'm just describing what I sort of see. What are the impulses describing this? How is this to be addressed? How does this fit within the scheme of reservation? How does this fit? I think that perhaps needs to be more, you know, into deeply discussed because the fact is, caste surveys aren't completely new in India. Like I said, in the 80s, we did it in Karnataka. 
I'm sure if you look further back, you know, you will find lots of states have very fine-tuned, very minute uh, data about caste, which they use for various purposes. And look, Karnataka has this, there are 280, 300 castes in that list of backward castes. All that data, somebody has to prepare a caste certificate for you. So the government has the data. The government knows what is the level of development of various things. It hasn't meant that Karnataka has slipped into this, you know, uh, completely uh, uh, non-functioning public society, not society or failed state. Yes, there are problems, but it is some. It has been figured out at some level. But I think that is surely not the problem with this discourse. The problem, perhaps, with this discourse is something that it is being rendered irrelevant in some ways. That. It is being rendered irrelevant where we are discussing the percentages when the pie itself is disappearing. So I I, I would say that this course about this should be what is the pie that you're eventually going to distribute? Whatever your car census shows. Sorry to interrupt, but, yeah. <clears throat> but there are legal battles about, you know, uh, the need for implementing preservation even in contractual jobs, isn't it? I think some of the high courts have ruled in favor of but, it, but it, it is a bad trend that uh, correct, the jobs is, are going is, away. But, it is. Correct. Yeah. But, but it isn't It isn't something which the government is being forced, kicking and screaming into doing. There is still no large-scale nationwide consensus, like with, say, scheduled caste reservation or scheduled tribe reservation, that even these contractual posts will necessarily involve. There are, you're right. There are some judgments here and there which have said that. But it's not as if it has become part and parcel of the way the government offers this. And again, like I said, the way to uh, overcome this entirely is to give the entire work to one other company. The government will say, oh, it's for the company now. So to do it, government can wash its hands off easily. Yes, there are ways to address this, but that is the conversation we need to have. Right. That yeah. is the conversation that I feel that is necessary to be had. That if the government is giving away so much of it, and the, sometimes the, I, I hesitate to use the word reservation in the context of private entities because that term doesn't make sense when the process of hiring and the process of uh, uh, human resources is different in a private entity than the government sector. We need a new term to even describe what we mean by ensuring, say, greater representation for excluded castes within the private sector. What is that term? I don't know, but that is the conversation we need to have. Professor Kalayasan, would you like to add anything to this your earlier no, no, answer? I think, and I, also have, to, I, I, I think I take a little detour and uh, address the question on the conceptual level as you raise sure. a very important question as to whether caste senses lead to accentuation of caste identities and fragmented quality. Because this is a very important uh, argument. There's a there's a there's a long tradition of uh, uh, a long history to this argument. I think I need to be, this question needs to be addressed in a two level, one at the conceptual level, another one is the empirical level. Let me address the conceptual level question. This is not just begins with Pita uh, Bhanamita's uh, uh, argument of past senses and lead to reduce slot people to their immediate identity. That is his, is the central line of his argument, which I think there is an element of truth and also an history. That history actually starts with the British uh, the census, basically, how the the way in which the British counted caste, or the way in which it actually slaughtered people in in certain caste grouping, which led to what we see as a modern caste identities. So that is an history. It's it's there in the in, in you know in the in the academic uh, uh, debate for a long time, starting from Nicholas Starks to Bernard Cohn. All of this tradition called. It is essentially by counting caste, you are actually creating a caste 
structure. That's a you know one way of uh, thinking through. I think it's very very elaborate argument over there. But only my problem is I think we need to understand caste as as Alok mentioned. Caste is in reality just because you are accounting or counting not necessarily lead to of centering it. There may be a potential people, political parties, individual vested interests will exploit this counting processes into creating a separate, you know, uh, political party or a separate, you know, very sectional, you know, uh, you know, getting their sectional interest and that kind of mobilization. I think we need to be mindful of uh, what is that we are doing here. And then this, this, this has to be seen in that context. What we are doing here is simply counting the existing realities. But as Pranab Banamata mentioned, it has a potential what others would call as a caste majority mission. It has a potential unless there is an, a simultaneous an attempt to address this question in a collective way without encouraging specific caste mobilization, which I would think of any any kind of social policy around caste or any kind of caste census, in this case caste census, has to necessarily come along with an ideological campaign or kind of political mobilization which counters or the tames the individual caste mobilization which may at times result into kind of caste violence in which the subaltern communities within, within OBC maybe the lower end OBC may suffer or maybe a Dalit would suffer in this kind of caste majority and that fear is very genuine fear. But that does not mean that we need not to count this, you know, in the process. I think we need to, this has to go simultaneously. I think I would like to remind back, you know, starting from Dr. Ambedkar mention of uh, why caste is always divisive. So the caste is divisive. In this case also counting this, I think my, this process will lead to individual caste mobilization, you know, breaking, you know, political, uh, political, you know, breaking the political process, you know, fragmented identity, that will, I think, will happen. But the question is, will collective response resolve or address that question? I think this we have to be mindful. Unless we don't do that, there is a very much possibilities of what Yemen Cinemas would call individual caste upgrading their social status through this kind of counting and the consequent state policies. That may happen. But whether Political response is to willing to address this, what you call as adverse effect of uh, uh, counting this. I think we need to be mindful of that. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much. So I'll come to the last question that is about, you know, how is this going to play out politically in the immediate and medium run? Uh, we saw that in the post the implementation of the Mandal Commission's recommendations, we saw the emergence of uh, many OBC parties, including the RJD, the Samajwadi Party, and others. But the BJP somehow managed to uh, electorally uh, become victorious out of that uh, through its own, the within quote, social engineering and also Hindutva. They were somehow able to consolidate votes across caste lines based on a Hindutva identity. So how do you see that play out after this particular development? Will the opposition parties be able to corner BJP politically or does BJP have few more strict tricks in its uh, uh, place to, you know, uh, gain advantage in elections from this? Professor Kalerison, would you like to go first? Yes, very much. I think this uh, this movement in history, I see, is a movement of Mandal 1 and Mandal 2 in many ways. Mandal 1, Mandal 2 also 
uh, uh, received similar kind of response in BJP. If you follow its uh, uh, parent organization, RSS and others, they see clearly this kind of uh, caste-based intervention either in the Mandal 1 or Mandal 2 or even the caste census see as a breaking of what they call as a Hindu unity. And this case also, this will definitely in the shorter run give up, you know, would push BJP in a defensive mode, which actually already started happening. If you remember the moment on second, October 2nd, when BR government released this caste data, population data, and immediately in the same evening, the Prime Minister actually responded saying that the countries are being divided. So we was, you know, remember it was a so immediate response. I think there is a definitely a pushback to BJP with this consensus. Whether this will be the position in the longer run, we don't know. Why? Because it is a possible the BJP may even in the longer run adjust to this new reality. As I mentioned earlier, caste mobilization, that the way it is happening without any social or the broad-based anti-caste mobilization can very much be placed what we call upgrading status in the hierarchy of transcritization process. So that kind of mobilization may help BJP in the longer run, stitching some kind of social pollution. But the shorter run, it may not happen. That's uh, my reading. But for example, just a great example is the UP. If you carefully watch the UP politics, Mandal 1 definitely pushed back back to BJP and BJP went on the defensive and the Mandal parties came into force. But as I mentioned earlier, the caste mobilization that followed with the Mandal parties did not really address the anti-caste sentiment or did not address the what you call the broad-based problems. They in fact resulted into kind of a very specific caste mobilization. As a result, the BJP you know, mobilized the left-out communities on its fold later that we saw in the 2017 election and the 2019 election very clearly in the UP, and it is also happening in the BR. So this here, in the shorter run, it looks like a BJP in the defensive mode, but given its history, it may in the longer run consolidate or adjust to this new reality that depends on how the political parties respond to this. But I would, one thing I can mention, by caste, by design is divisive. You need uh, some kind of glue to put them together. So whether that glue is Hindutva or you can think of that glue could be other very emancipatory glue. It could be called as a any normative glue called as a Bhagavan or called as a, you know, some kind of uh, class-based mobilization or something which transcends the caste identity, aggregates these communities together and provides some kind of meaningful representation. As long as that glue is missing, there may be a possibility for BJP again to stitch this uh, divided communities and build a longer position. I don't know now, depends on the political contestation and the political taxes. Thank you. Makes sense. Uh, how do you see this, uh, Mr. Alok? What are your thoughts? I will first wait to see the socioeconomic uh, data from the car census. Because uh, that was partly the reason why Again, it's a conspiracy theory. Nobody has seen the full report or whoever has seen the full report is only giving out bits and bits. The socioeconomic caste census in Karnataka, kind of, which has taken place in the early Sidramaya government, hasn't been released because the data would cause a backlash against the more quote-unquote dominant uh, uh, backward caste communities, which in turn could cause upheaval within the all the political parties. Because uh, even... 
say some a, a party like JDS in Karnataka, which is seen as a Vokaliga party, is a breakaway of a breakaway of the original Janata party. Likewise, the RGD, right? I think we need to perhaps disaggregate a lot of parties into those which have formed up around a caste and those which broke apart on the basis of caste. So maybe that, I suppose a political theorist or political scientist would be in a better position to talk about. But first, I would wait to see what this data actually shows. Has Is it true? Because then the narrative shifts completely. The narrative shifts to say, look, Kurmi's queries, again, hypothetically, Kurmi's queries and Yadavs have dominated all of this. BJP doesn't need to do anything. The data speaks for itself. And keep in mind, there is something which the BJP has been working on, or the central BJP, rather, let's say the NDA government at the center has been working on for the last five years, which is the Rohini Commission. Its report apparently has been finalized, but has not been made public, which is on subcategorization. If if the data shows, for instance, that three, maybe four communities in Bihar have dominated the benefits of uh, the backward caste system, then the BJP will say, look, we have the solution. You know, just increasing overall to 60% does not help anyone because it's just going to mean all 60% or whatever of the reservation is going to be taken up by these three, four dominant communities. We here provide you a better solution. We are going to subcategorize. We are going to do this, that, and the other thing. And the narrative suddenly flips all of a sudden. So I would wait to see what the data actually says. Because again, if Karnataka's experience 30 years ago is any indicator, we might be in for a few surprises. That numbers, just the aggregate numbers of which caste as how many people alone may not be the real impact of this report. The real impact of the caste survey might be when the socioeconomic data comes out and suddenly everyone has to rethink what they understood about this caste survey. Thank you. Thank you so much, Professor Kalerison. Thank you, Mr. Alok. Uh, I certainly found this discussion to be very insightful. I am sure our readers and listeners will also find it uh, in the same way. Thank you once again for joining. Thank you. Thank you. My pleasure to be here. Thank Thank you. you. Wonderful conversation. Thank you.